Hello, and welcome back to Pop Enlightenments, the best-slash-only podcast exploring the representation of 18th century culture in contemporary pop culture. I'm Dr Emrys Jones of King's College London, and for the next two episodes of our second season, I'm going to be joined once again by our original podcast guest, Dr Adam James Smith. Adam is a lecturer in 18th century literature at York St John University, he has his own podcast, Smith and War Talk About Satire, which I heartily recommend. And he is on a lifelong quest to become the most famous Adam Smith associated with the 18th century. How's that working out for you, Adam? Yeah, I'm getting there. He casts a long shadow, but you know, I opened a fortune cookie last night that said I will make a name for myself. Excellent. Um, and hopefully that name is Adam Smith and not an unrelated name. I think the 18th century Adam Smith just has an advantage in that he was actually there in the 18th century, but... But hey, I'm sure you'll get there. <laughs> right, well, in this episode and the one following, we're going to be marking a couple of important anniversaries. 300 years since the first publication of Robinson Crusoe in 1719, and next episode, the 200th anniversary of 1819's Peterloo Massacre. But for now, let's concentrate our energies on Crusoe and his many, many pop cultural manifestations. Daniel Defoe was around the age of 59 when he first became a novelist, and even then, as I am constantly reminding my undergraduate students, it's not as if he sat down one day, pulled out his How to Write a Successful Novel handbook, and decided that this was the job for him. For all that I'm suspicious of claims for Defoe as the father of the novel, it is true that the novel as such was an undefined, practically unimagined literary mode at the moment of Crusoe's birth. This story of a merchant and slave trader shipwrecked on a desert island presented itself to the world not as a finely crafted fiction, but as a true history, a life poured out messily onto the page with enough moments of repetition and inconsistency to make generations of readers wonder what the point of the whole thing was. Adam, maybe I should start by asking, do you like Robinson Crusoe as a novel? I've really warmed to it over time. I think initially I didn't like it at all. I think my opinion was slightly skewed by when I was taught it as an undergraduate, and my tutor told me that when he was taught it, um, his tutor had told him that he usually refused to teach it. It was nothing but a damp tissue of capitalist bourgeois propaganda. Right. It's taken me about 10 years to get over that. OK, so. but you but you are in, in the process, at least, of getting over yeah, that initial yeah. indictment. Then, then I spent a long year, a, long, a few years fascinated by the prefatory packaging of it as truth. Mm -hmm. And then I finally got around to reading the novel for what it is. And um, yeah, I'm warming to it. Every year I teach it again and again and again. And every year I'm less annoyed by it. It is maybe so. a better text to teach than it is to be taught. Is, is that maybe a, a lesson to take away from that? I don't know. <laughs> it's a better text to discuss than to read. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would tend to agree with you on that. And that does parallel my own experiences with it. I, I remember really hating it as an undergraduate and hating most Defoe novels that I read, but then perversely coming to to love the very things about it that I hated, the inconsistencies, the repetitions, the, frankly, the incoherence of the whole thing, mm. and the sense that Defoe is just making stuff up as he goes along, as he writes, which tends to be my sense of it even today, mm. but I, I sort of love that about it. Yeah, I have to feel exactly the same. I mean, I, I joke about not liking it, but it is the fact that it's so inconsistent and open, and that there is perhaps I don't think it's intentional necessarily, but there is a psychological realism to Crusoe because he's so inconsistent mm. backwards and forwards and his mind meanders and... Yeah, yeah, if you were setting out to write a perfectly crafted novel, you would yeah. not create a, an individual as flawed and 
kind of inconsistent, contradictory yeah. as this particular character. And again, I don't know how intentional, I think it is at least partially intentional, but it's commitment to the conceit that it is these this person's writings. Mm. The first thing. I love all the stuff about um, where he has to find ink and paper so that he can write things down. I mean, that, yeah. that's great. And you just sense Defoe thinking through, oh no, I've got to apologise and explain why why this has happened and why I've not mentioned this before. There's a yeah. point later in the novel where he says, this was the most terrifying thing that I've ever come across. Oh, wait, except I've already said that at some point several hundred pages earlier. So it's except that last time I said it was the most terrifying yeah. thing. It is really the most terrifying. Very, very strange novel if you are reading it as a novel, but mm. then comes to make sense, perhaps, if you see it as, as some strange experiment in... Mm in creating a voice, I guess, mm -hmm. which is, well, it's what I tend to explain it as to my own undergraduate students, I guess. Yeah. When we think about the novel and its, its huge number of different afterlives and adaptations that have come out of it, are there particular qualities of this text that need to be ignored or adapted in order to make it palatable to a film audience, say, or a TV audience? Yeah, I think there certainly is, and I mean, on the on the one hand, I think there is in terms of adapting this novel because for all of the inconsistencies and structural challenges mm. uh, that it presents, that let's you say could, challenges. Yeah, yes. a straightforward adaptation would be long, mm. and a lot of it would seem not very relevant. Yeah. Um. So I think that people do look at it and then have to choose what the themes and the stories are going to be. That they're going to take from it, yeah. um, and give it some kind of thematic mm. background. But then also there are parts which I think are frankly uncomfortable and problematic and yeah. I can see why they don't get adapted straightforwardly. I mean l largely involving slavery, Crusoe's yeah. career as a slave trader yeah. even before he gets to the island. The extraordinary moment when he first meets Friday mm. and Friday bends, bends down and puts his head on his foot and then Crusoe concludes that therefore this person is his slave it's for his life. slave for life and, and really wants to be his slave, yeah. yeah. It, it is a it's such a strange moment. Um, I mean, I think also, yes, I agree with you, there's so much that's problematic in, in terms of the relations between Crusoe and Friday and, well, his whole attitude towards the island, frankly, as his own little colony. But then it is, I, I do come back to the aesthetic considerations as well, that you just think it cannot be translated effectively hmm. into into any gripping TV drama or, or film, anything that would fit our understanding of what a film narrative should be. Because frankly, at times in this novel, it's like Defoe has just left the camera running mm. or that he just he's trying to fill up the pages or something. After Crusoe gets off the island here, we've still got, I don't know how many pages it is, but a considerable amount of time of Crusoe just wandering around a bit. Oh, maybe he'll I'll have Friday fight a bear in well, the that's, Pyrenees. That's, that, for me, is the greatest tragedy of the afterlife of Robinson Crusoe, is that my favourite sequence is, is with the bear. Mm. Um, and it doesn't get adapted, does no, it? No, and where Friday makes the bear dance. And again, yeah. I remember in that first seminar I had, my tutor said to everyone, what did you all think to the bit with the dancing bear, where Friday is going, dance, bear, dance. <laughs> and you could see 80% of the room who hadn't read the book were all thinking yeah. it was some kind of horrible trap. Or had read maybe an online <laughs> synopsis that yeah. hadn't bothered with that weird extraneous bit that comes yeah. at the end. But then, because I, I use that bit, to te now I use that in my own teaching. And it's a fascinating moment because the way that Friday treats the bear is the way that Crusoe's treated Friday, which suggests that there is an awareness of... So maybe Crusoe. Defoe does know yeah. what he's doing and there yeah. is some purpose to what seems like a strange 
tangential anecdote. Yeah. But it, yeah, it certainly strikes me as at least one of the moments that when filmmakers come round to, to dealing with Crusoe, mm. they don't really know what to mm. do with. At least I'm not particularly familiar with any version that spends much time with Crusoe after leaving the island. No. Um, the other way in which Crusoe, I guess, as a story has been distorted over the centuries, and it is something that has started to happen already in the 18th century, is this association of the story with a story for children, mm. I guess. And a lot of people who haven't read Crusoe in the original have read it in kind of barbarized children's versions, or at least think that they know the story through children's versions of it, think that it's a friendly adventure mm. story. Why might that be? Do you have any thoughts on well, I don't how know. that developed? There's an, again, when I teach this text, there's an activity that we that I do where I take them to the library and we go on 18th century collects online and I ask them to look at different editions of it because mm. it's got this amazing legacy of being immediately readapted and sequels and stuff. And mm. there's one I was discussing with you earlier, um, which is a French adaptation mm. for children and it's mm. called Robinson Crusoe Instructions. And that is within the 18th century, yeah, yeah, that it's already Um, marketed in that way. And the lessons are, you know, be a little capitalist, like make sure you can Mm. manage your resources carefully (laughs) and be, don't check your privilege, be aware of your privilege. I mean, it leads me to one of my favourite anecdotes, one of my favourite Amazon customer reviews I've ever come across, which I, I was looking at in advance of today. I was looking for it in advance of today and I couldn't track it down. But I distinctly remember coming across an, a very disgruntled parent writing their Amazon customer review of whatever edition of Robinson Crusoe it was, saying that they had bought this with the intention of reading it to their, their little four or five-year-old child every night and just how distressed and nightmare-inducing this experience had been ultimately because... For much of the book, let's be frank, it's catalogues of how many goats Crusoe is keeping and how many he's slaughtering to, mm. to get by. He keeps some kittens, but not really with a view much to having them as pets. Mm-hmm. And it's boring, if we're honest about it. Fascinatingly boring, I would yeah. say, but not great kids' bedtime story material. No. <laughs> and yeah, that's the paradox of it, isn't it? Like, as a text, it's so strange and inaccessible and could be described as boring, but the conceit of being stuck on a desert island having to survive and influences exactly. everything from, you know, all these sequels to things like Desert Island Discs. Like, it's the conceit of Robinson Crusoe, isn't it? So... Yeah. Um, which I think is cool for children. There's, I just remembered, there was a cartoon I used to watch when I was a kid called Robinson Crusoe. Really? It was from the same people who made the cartoon Albert the Fifth Musketeer. Oh, fantastic. I... Just, I feel retrospectively deprived now that my childhood, as far as I know, did not contain any Robinson Crusoe cartoons. Well, that brings us neatly on anyway to our pop cultural artefacts themselves for today. And in planning this episode, Adam and I were confronted by a whole multitude of Crusoe adaptations and imitations, ranging from more or less faithful attempts to retell Defoe's original story, to weird and wonderful narratives that transplant Crusoe in time or space. From works that revere Crusoe and his slave Friday as spiritual or literary forebears, to those that do not directly cite Defoe at all, but nonetheless take from him the idea, that central idea of the shipwreck and the narrative challenges of isolation. At its most capacious, we could include in the Crusoe genre films like The Martian or TV shows like Lost, Given the sheer amount of material out there, it seemed to make sense not to converge on just one or two works for this episode, but for Adam and I each to choose the Crusoes that interested us the most, 
and to keep our conversation moving between these. So, Adam, which of Crusoe's descendants did you choose to spend time with in preparation for this episode? Well, the first, serendipitously, was a board game that I persuaded my library at York St. John to purchase as a text to potentially teach on the um, 18th century module. A shout out to, to York St. John yeah. University Library for being so willing to uh, so absolutely. Um, um, countenance innovation there. That's excellent. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm hoping that we'll have an, an evening where we can play that and then maybe discuss it as a kind of experimental text. But it's called uh, Robinson Crusoe Adventures on the Cursed Island. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's there's two different ways you can play it. You can play it as quite a straightforward board game that takes two hours or you can play it as an ongoing sort of role-playing game. And actually thinking about Robinson Crusoe as the potential framing for an ongoing role-playing game, I think potentially makes a lot of sense of what Defoe is doing. Mm. Because it it reads like the notes. Robinson Crusoe, the novel, reads like the notes from someone who's playing Dungeons & Dragons, doesn't it? It does, although I could also (laughs) see it as a as a resource-gathering, Monopoly-style yeah. game yeah. where you're, you're building up your whatever yeah. your little community of yeah. goats. Um, <laughs> Those moments where he's left the camera running are perhaps just moments where the games master, the dungeon master, has let the, let the ball drop for a minute and can't think of what to do next. Right, uh, um, yeah. I mean, it, it's a hoarder's paradise, isn't it? It's yeah. Crusoe's Island. So have you played the game I've yet? Had, I've not played it. Um, funnily enough, you can't play it as one person, which I think seems absurd. Totally so counterproductive. <laughs> this is a Robinson yeah. Crusoe board game and you have to have people Four to play as women. women. Yeah. Consider me disappointed. There. Yeah. <laughs> um, but no, you have to... So, so it's a board game and you have to collect resources to survive. There's a dial on the side of landmarks that you have to pass to, to complete the game. So you have to build a shelter, you have to find food. And then there are cards that you turn over which will trigger an event, which could be a storm, or okay. it could be being attacked by wolves, or you know fighting various beasts. Excellent. Um, so you just have to protect yourself from the weather, from animals, mm-hmm. um, until you've amassed enough resources to sustain yourself. Um, and I think that you get so many goes before help arrives. So you it sounds survive. pretty stressful, I've got to say. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure that this sounds like my idea of a kind of relaxed no. night in with friends. But um, I know, I mean, the competitive element as well is, will you be the person who survives long enough for help to arrive? Is there a, a Friday piece in the game? Is there any element of Friday there? He, I don't think he doesn't appear as a character in the in any of the narratives or stories that I've certainly that I've encountered. He might be on one of the event cards, but I think there are there's a certain there's a set of pieces, and one of them is clearly Robinson Crusoe dressed in rags. There's one which I suspect is supposed to be Friday, though he's not named. Okay, um, yeah, but not given all that much attention no. there. And there's one that looks like a pirate, which is interesting because they're not the good guys in no, the book, are they? No. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that sounds, at least in the, the um, problematic omission of Friday, uh, fairly similar to one of the Crusoe afterlives that I was looking at for this episode. Uh, the 2016 film, animated film, Robinson Crusoe, which went by the title, I believe, in the United States of The Wildlife. The people marketing it had judged that Robinson Crusoe as a title would not be recognised or not be popular um, in the United States. I don't know. Uh, but it's, uh, yeah, it's very strange seeing, going back to what we said about children's association with Robinson Crusoe, to see this film, which I watched with my four-year-old son, very much leans into those associations of the story. And it is Crusoe shipwrecked on the island with talking animals uh, who, I mean, among the more interesting aspects of the movie, actually then serve as the narrators for the film. So most of the film is is told in hindsight by 
the, the parrot called Tuesday, named Tuesday by Crusoe, who has befriended Crusoe and helps him see off uh, attacks by some pirates, but also um, some conniving evil um, cats that have likewise shipwrecked on the island at the same time that Crusoe has. And there is no Friday to be found in that film, unless it is Tuesday himself, mm. but in which case it's a very kind of friendly, supportive relationship between them. I think at one point early in the film, we see Crusoe on the verge of going hunting, about to shoot one of these talking animals when he he cannot stomach it. He couldn't possibly do that. We're working with a very because vegetarian it, because version. Because Not because it speaks, but because he is just so kind-hearted and can, it's a kid's movie. Can he understand the animals? You see, you lead me into my <laughs> other point of interest in this movie about the extent to which if we're seeing it with jaded, um, grown-up eyes, this whole film could actually be some terrible hallucination that Crusoe <laughs> is experiencing on the island and actually is just a paranoid wreck himself, um, thinking that he is, is befriending animals and not really. Yes, I think that he, he does speak to the animals. Um, and in this world, in, I mean, sorry, let's break, think about this too much, but in the world that he inhabits, is it common for animals to speak or is it just the animals on this island? I, I think that's why he doesn't eat them. Yeah, I guess it is, it's largely the animals on this island. He has a dog who very tragically dies at, at one point in the movie. Oh. I can't remember now, maybe the dog doesn't speak. So yes, the, the, the animals that come to the island, well, the cats do. They're making me feel like I, I wasn't paying close enough attention. I think I was stressing so much about keeping my four-year-old from being upset about the death of this yeah. dog Ainsley that then I, I um, how, managed not to pay close enough attention to whether Crusoe was actually yeah. communicating with them. So I haven't seen this film, but was it 2016 it came out? It was, I was, I was yes. teaching Robinson Crusoe that year and in the lecture I thought it'd be a fun way to end by watching the trailer and mm -hmm. then inevitably in the seminar everyone was more interested in talking about the trailer than the book because <laughs> they'd seen that. Um, but uh, we were to, they were asking me, and I hadn't seen the film, whether the animals voluntarily choose to help him like Friday does, or whether he sees the animals and assumes they're all his servants and starts giving them orders. There is a bit of a plot where the evil cats try and turn the animals against Crusoe to begin with, but then Crusoe sees through it and ends up, yeah, establishing quite a, a friendly relationship with them. At the very end of the film, he doesn't want to be taken off the island by these pirates who have come to save him and the final line is we're going home as he and, and the other animals just head back to the island for a, a life of joyous fun and presumably hopefully not starvation and cannibalism <laughs> my son and i did not delve into those uh, implications no. too far <laughs> but it was quite an enjoyable way of of preparing for for this episode which was the other crusoe afterlife that you had taken a look at for today. Um, it's actually a novel that I've just finished reading, which was recommended on another podcast called The Back Backlisted Podcast, where they were discussing Journal of the Plague Yeggs and the anniversary, this anniversary, mm. and they ended up referring to this multiple times, so I thought that's got to be worth a read, and it ha it's fantastic, I've really enjoyed it, it's a very funny novel. What is the novel? Um, it do so it's called introduce. Crusoe's Daughter by Jane Gard Garden. It follows a, a young girl, well, follows a woman called Polly Flint, who's the daughter of a, a sea captain called Captain Flint, who she never knew because she's orphaned. Mm. Um, and then she ends up growing up with two aunts in the northeast of England in a very sort of remote, quite, quite lonely situation. But um, she reads Robinson Crusoe and sort of imprints on that novel. Mm. Um, and basically the, the rest of the novel, Crusoe's Daughter, is about her obsession with this book. 
Mm. Um, so she lives with her two aunts for a while. Then she ends up living um, near York, which is where mm -hmm. Robinson Crusoe is mm -hmm. from, the, the character, um, with, with a man called Mr. Thwaite who patronises artists. And there's a lot of artists coming in working on their own novels and poetry. And they all hate Daniel Defoe and Robinson Crusoe. <laughs> so her formative years are characterised by her constantly defending it. And there's a great bit where uh, Mr. Thwaite tells her that she should put down, put it down, because it, it's not developed. The novel hasn't developed as a form yet. It's rubbish. She, she should read Tennyson and Dickens. Mm. Um, and she says he's fundamentally... Well, Tennyson is famous for his great novels, <laughs> no, <isn't he>? exactly. <laughs> uh, which is, yeah, read, read good literature like Tennyson and Dickens, to which she says that he's misunderstood the plainness of Defoe, because in there you mm. find full poetic truth, um, and that Robertson Crusoe is an attempt at universal truth, but very differently expressed to or that of all other authors. That's so lovely. Really I mean, I'm not sure that I entirely agree, as I guess I've already said. I'm suspicious no. of readings of the universal in Robinson yeah. Crusoe at all, but it's a nice reading. It's, yeah. Yeah. And then for the rest of her life, she has various romantic suitors, some of, the, some of them end tragically, because the book is also the story of the 20th century, so the mm. world wars are happening and stuff, and mm. one of them dies. But all of the relationships are characterised by having her having arguments about how Robinson Crusoe is actually a good novel, mm -hmm. and then believing that it isn't. And then eventually she ends up living on her own as an 80-year-old woman, barricaded in her house as a protest against nuclear waste. Mm -hmm. um, and the one constant companion she's had through all of her life has been Robinson yeah. Crusoe. I did I did pick up on your recommendation the, the final kind of chapter of, mm. of the book, and it's, a, it's basically written out as a film's dialogue, almost, yeah. or a play's dialogue. Her and Robinson Crusoe just having a chat, as yeah. you do, at the end of end of her long eventful life which and is a, yeah it's a great intertextual like metatextual moment because for much of the book well her justification for why Robinson Crusoe is good is she says that it is novel in the sense that it is different and innovative mm -hmm. and then there's this really jarring moment at the end where it becomes as you say like a film script between mm -hmm. Holly and Crusoe who is aware of that Defoe is his creator so he's like mm -hmm. speaking to her as a fictional character and there's a moment where she says maybe we're all fictional Yes. Which is Ooh, funny because she is yeah, she the really daughter is. of Captain Flint in a novel. Yeah. Mm. Um, <laughs> and all of this business. But yeah, it's a quite postmodern, unexpectedly postmodern mm. ending. I was very impressed by, by what I read of it. I, I like the sense that perhaps that final, that final scene of the novel does gesture towards Crusoe's spilling out of his novel into other forms, other formats, into film as well as TV and stage, whatever it might be. Mm. You also mentioned one of your favourite moments from this novel being where the main character, Polly, is trying to teach Robinson Crusoe yeah. to some school students, which sounded a particularly kind of evocative yeah. moment, heart-rending moment for those of us who are teachers. That's right. It's for, it's, I hate it when... Um, it's a real bugbear of mine when students say they like books because they're relatable, but this was a profoundly relatable moment where... <laughs> she gets invited to teach a class in a school about Robinson Crusoe and you get all of, because it's a first person narrative, you get all of her anxieties and she sort of, there's a bit where she's reflecting on the fact that her life has been a solitary work of writing essays and writing chapters about Robinson Crusoe, which she never wants to be published just because it's it's her way of demonstrating her love for this text. Mm. And then she's like, but how am I to communicate to the, this to a room full of children? Mm. And then you get her essay, uh, her lesson plan, which is just strikingly familiar. She says, I'll begin by discussing the concept of the novel, the English novel, how it emerged from jumbled and, and simplistic sources some 300 years ago into the literary form we recognise today, its purpose to give solace and simultaneously to disturb, though its true genius lies deep within man himself in his urge to tell a tale, 
I would describe how, as blobs of jelly and the flat ribbons in the sea, became fish, became birds, became mammals, and the intricate man, so the grunts and snuffles of the cave became anecdote, joke, tale, tale set to music, saga, song, and the glorious traveller's tale, and then arose Defoe from the smelly streets of London, <laughs> honest man and criminal, prolific genius and hacked, to produce the greatest curiosity, this extraordinary masterpiece, mm. the paradigm, Robinson Crusoe itself, the novel elect, fully realised and complete, like the child Athena springing from the head of the rough god Zeus. And then and she's it, got the yeah. five-point the five point planet. And I just imagine the blank faces of the pupils <laughs> in that room. Which is, the, I mean, it's, it is beautiful. I, yeah. Again, I can't say I necessarily agree that this is the novel fully formed no, quite as she presents absolutely it. Absolutely not. But then she breaks down her lesson into four, four parts, which is the development of narrative for the 18th century from Defoe to Richardson, imitators and reactors against Defoe, the rise of women novelists, interesting developments in the novel, e.g. gothic, and then she just put a little note in brackets, the novel in the late 19th century, I thought, might be best left to somebody else in a lesson later, which is where I always end as well. well. It's an ambitious <laughs> lesson plan, at least, doesn't it? And the children hate it. Well, it reminds me of a rather unfortunate anecdote of my own from before I, I when I was first looking for academic positions, actually, after getting my PhD, and, and went for some interviews at schools, and remember one particularly well, in which I was asked in the interview, what would your ideal perfect text be to teach to 13-year-olds? And I didn't have a clue, but I said Daniel Defoe's Journal of the Plague Year, <laughs> and only after realising just how kind of ridiculous this sounded, seeing the, the looks on the interview panel's faces, and it's just the horror that I would imagine teenagers might find this interesting. But, uh, well, to some extent, I stand by it. It's a great book. I think that's a fantastic suggestion. It make them be make them better people. Yes, <laughs> I better than Robinson Crusoe would. I think. Yeah. Just one more Crusoe afterlife to mention then that I have tracked down, and I thought it would be a shame if we let this episode pass by without thinking about Crusoe and sci-fi to some extent. As there's a whole wealth of different versions of of Crusoe transplanted to outer space or through various kind of fantastical shenanigans here on Earth. I've mentioned already uh, Lost and The Martian, Lost being probably my favourite TV show of all time, although I think really it only owes the initial scenario to Robinson Crusoe and much of the rest of it is more kind of 19th century sprawling Dickensian novel in TV form. But Particularly for today, I, I took a look at a 1964 film, Robinson Crusoe on Mars, which I hadn't seen before my preparations for this episode, was pretty wild and fun. You've got an American astronaut, obviously film made in the years before the, the moon landings, crash landing on Mars. His uh, co-pilot dies in the crash, but he is accompanied by uh, a cheerful monkey called Mona, who I think is the, the star of the film. Was and it a real monkey? It was a real monkey, yeah. And I, I, I'm not sure I want to know how well the <laughs> monkey was treated on set in the 1960s. It probably wasn't the most progressive time for um, animal treatment on film sets, but quite the star of the movie. In the course of the film, encounters his own version of Friday, who is a curiously human-looking alien who himself has been enslaved by another alien race and sent to mine the planet Mars for some particular special kind of rock. 
and who develops a friendship with this version of Crusoe much as we get in Defoe's novel, uh, complete with all the problems of that as well. There's a moment of the Crusoe character saying, I'm the boss to him. I get the sense from some of the scholarship surrounding this film, a bit of debate about quite how problematic the film acknowledges itself to be in doing that. Uh, it struck me interesting, I guess, in that here we had a Crusoe who is sort of pure explorer. It's all about discovery mm. in a way that it isn't really in Defoe's mm. novel. It's about acquisition as much as anything. But here, yeah, it's all about the excitement of a new place. It's also much more nationalistic in more obvious ways, I guess, than Defoe's novel, although kind of Crusoe's Englishness is important to him, as well as his sort of Dutch origins. Here in this film, the Americanness of the main character does come through first and foremost quite a bit of the time, uh, the American flag being foregrounded quite a bit. I know that you were likewise interested, Adam, in, in some of Crusoe's sci-fi heritage, mm. for instance, in uh, the Lost in Space TV show that I guess debuted a year or so after this Robinson Crusoe on Mars film that I've mentioned. It, it does sound like there's, there are parallels, and I wonder if there is something happening with the children's adaptations of Robinson Crusoe and then the Swiss Family Robinson, which isn't a text I'm familiar with, but I know that that's mm. popular, particularly mm. in American popular culture, isn't it? And Lost in Space is an adaptation of... Of Swiss, Swiss Family, Family Robinson. Robinson, and then yeah. kind of by extension, so it's sort of... Robinson Crusoe is the granddad, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're the Robinson family, and they have a monkey, and they have a robot. Oh, they have a monkey yeah. as well. Okay, so Blot. monkeys all round. Yeah, um, in and B9, the robot, which is essentially Louise, well, their servant, isn't he? Um, so, mm -hmm. and then the, the, one of my favourite episodes of the original Lost in Space is called War of the Robots, where they encounter Robbie the robot from Forbidden Planet, and it's the same robot who wants to be free, and then they have all those discussions about whether it's appropriate for basically sentient artificial life form mm. B9 to um, to be their servant, which is a kind of Friday-esque It is, it certainly is. They have. I'm going to have to add it to the list of, yeah. of Crusoe's I need to catch up on alongside this animated Robinson yeah. Crusoe. But I mean, it's interesting that they've that they repositioned the, the one that you're discussing, Robinson Crusoe on Mars, as an exploration narrative. Because I mean, I, I read The Martian a few months ago, Mm. And um, that works, isn't it? Because it's such a good analogy. He's stranded on Mars. He's not gone. There. Well, they have gone to colonise it, but he's mm. stranded there. And then because it's his log, you've got the same journal conceit. Mm. But, I mean, if you think of these Robinson Crusoe characters in space terraforming other planets, it, I find that a bit uncomfortable. Like, it's, it's imperialism and colonialism again in space, isn't it? So mm. just recycling problems of the 18th century. Same problems, the space. same tropes. Mm. Well, this has been fascinating talking through what really is only just a small selection of all of the different Crusoes, potential Crusoes that are out there. Great discussing that with you, Adam. Next episode, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to be covering another important anniversary, a very different anniversary, that of the, the 1819 Peterloo Massacre. But for now, thank you very much again, Adam, and thank you for listening.